Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am very excited to be back for our second season, which is going to run during the 2018-2019 academic year. I've got six really fascinating interviews for you, and these are going to cover topics including late antique military history, concubines in early Islam, monastic intellectual culture, late medieval political philosophy, as well as modern medievalism as encountered in the Arthurian stories written by J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and the other Inklings. But today, for our first episode of the season, I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Beckley about the manuscript marginalia for Chaucer's epic poem, Troilus and Cressida. Dr. Beckley earned her PhD in English from the University of Notre Dame, and now she is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Mississippi. Her article, Multidimensional Reading in Two Manuscripts of Troilus and Cressida, was published in the Chaucer Review in 2016. This is the first time that I've interviewed a scholar about manuscripts and how strange they are to our sensibilities today, and I am really excited about it. Dr. Beckley, thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. Well, let's start with some background. Uh, Troilus and Cressida is a poem by Geoffrey Chaucer. And well, I think it's fair to say that most of us read some Chaucer in high school, at least. Probably a refresher on Chaucer might be a good place to start. If we're familiar with Chaucer, in general, we know the Canterbury Tales, right? That's the thing that most people probably see. They probably see it in maybe a slightly boulderized or censored form, or maybe they get some tales, but not the whole thing. The Canterbury Tales is it's a fantastic text. It's the culmination of actually a long sort of career of writing literature that most people don't really necessarily know about. So just a little bit of background on Chaucer, right? He's, he's regarded usually as the father of English poetry. He's sometimes called a feminist. He's sometimes called a misogynist. He's the voice of a changing class structure, but he's writing for like very aristocratic patrons. He critiques religious corruption. He writes anti-Semitic stories. He writes really obscene stories. He writes allegory and devotional lyric and dream visions and prose sermons and historical romance. So he is doing all kinds of things. He's fantastically experimental um, and encyclopedic and, and conventional and weird all at the same time. Chaucer is working at the end of the 14th century. Um, he's one of four major figures who we tend to refer to as the Ricardian poets because they're producing texts during the reign of Richard II. Um, and there are some of the, this is contestable, right? But there's some of the earliest major vernacular English authors. There's lots of other stuff being produced then, but those are the four that we tend to rightly or wrongly hold up as the first major English poets writing in English. Well, in Middle English. So Chaucer's born in the 1340s. He had a really long like civil service career. Um, so he was in and out of the courts of Edward III and Richard II. He was sent on diplomatic missions during the Hundred Years' War um, and had some, some relatively like posh, lucrative kinds of jobs as controller of customs, um, as a clerk of the works at a bunch of royal estates. So he's really well connected. He's really upwardly mobile. And that helped support, I think, a pretty productive literary career, starting in like the late 1360s to 1370s. So his major works are, and I'm just going to give you these in chronological order, are The Book of the Duchess, um, which is this consolation dream vision written for John of Gaunt after his wife was killed in the plague. You've got The House of Fame, which is the text that tends to really confuse and frustrate people. It's this allegorical, metapoetic dream vision about how writing and poetry works. Uh, the Parliament of Fowls is another dream vision about a bunch of birds who debate who gets to marry um, a very noble eagle. Uh, and then you have Troilus and Cressida. That's how we say Chaucer's. Troilus and Cressida is um, Shakespeare, right? And if you're uh, being pedantic, Middle English scholars, as we often tend to be, it's Troilus and Cressida. And then The Legend of Good Women, and then finally we get to the Canterbury Tales. And then Chaucer dies in ostensibly in 1400 um, on October 25th and is buried in Westminster Abbey. So um, he dies right around when some of the first copies of the Canterbury Tales are being circulated. And people debate the extent to which that text is finished or not. Chaucer's pretty notorious for not actually finishing things he starts. And of his like major, longer poems, Troilus and Crusade is actually the only one that's finished. 
Well, since you've, you've corrected my pronunciation of Middle <laughs> English and, and have mentioned Middle English here, could you tell us a little bit about Middle English and how that differs from Old English and Modern English? Old English is, contrary to popular belief, Old English is not what Shakespeare wrote. Old English is uh, about a millennium before Shakespeare, and it's the earliest form of English. It's really close to German. It's what Beowulf is in. So you can find, I think, recordings of people reading Beowulf, reading Old English online. I don't have enough of it memorized or to hand to try and give you some, but it sounds, um, the first couple into Beowulf, right, are like, what, we gardena in Yerodagum, and that's all I can remember. So that does not sound like English. Middle English is what you get when Old English meets French after the Norman Conquest. And so it sounds a lot more like modern English. The main difference is going to be the vowel sounds. They sound much more like what you would what you would hear in Romance languages. Um, this is prior to what we call the great vowel shift, when long vowels take the kind of sound qualities that they have now. Um, and it sounds like this. This is actually Chaucer. Um, this is the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. Uh, Juan, that April with his shore is sorte, the drucht of March hath persed to the rote, and bathed every vein in switchly cool, of which virtue on genre is the floor. When April, with his sweet showers, pierces the, the drought of March and bathes every vein which, with such sweet liquor that um, their nature creates flowers. So it's a bit closer to modern English, right? And this is between the Norman Conquest, so 11th century, and sometime mid-15th century, right? There's, I think, it's hard to put a precise date to it because, of course, the language people speak isn't necessarily the language we see represented in texts. But we consider, like Mallory's Mort d'Arthur Middle English, we consider Shakespeare and, and sort of his contemporaries early modern English. Right? So the pivot point is somewhere in there. Well, since you work on manuscripts, I thought we might also have you give us a little background in medieval manuscripts before we get into the actual work that you're doing and your argument in this article. And maybe really kind of my broadest questions are, what were late medieval books like? How were they produced? And how were they disseminated? We have to keep in mind when we're talking about medieval books, right, that printing isn't really the mode of production in Europe until the 15th century. You know, it's not like print doesn't exist. Print, woodblock printing has been used um, in China, for example, for centuries before it finds its way into use in Europe. But the first real sort of printing presses in Europe are Gutenberg in 1440, um, and then Caxton, who sets up, he's the English um, printer, the first one. He sets up his press in Westminster at 1476. Um, and the first book he prints actually is Chaucer. It's the Canterbury Tales. So prior to then, books look very different from what we think of a text being. And, and you get them instead in manuscript forms. So what manuscript means literally is written by hand. Um, and this means that we think about literature as, as being pretty stable, right? Like you've got an edition of a text and I can take a book off of my shelf. I can take a book off of the library shelf and they're going to say the same thing. And that's not the case because you have a different kind of human error. Um, people spell things differently. People make mistakes when they're copying. Um, so texts look very different from one another as well. All right. So manuscripts, right? I said they're written by hand. The surface they're written on is also quite different. You don't really see paper used widely in the Middle Ages until uh, roughly around the same time as printing, maybe a little bit earlier. Instead, texts tend to be copied on parchment. Um, and these are uh, surfaces made from animal skins. So it's the process is a bit like making leather. You sort of start off the same way, right? You've got to get the skin off the animal, and then you've got to get the hair and the flesh off of it. And you do that by soaking it in um, a, a caustic solution and sort of scraping hair and flesh off of both sides with, um, you want to use a curved blade because skin stretches and you don't want to tear it. The process differs from leather after that point. So where leather is like a chemical process that changes the surface, makes it soft and flexible, parchment making is a physical one. Um, so what happens instead is that parchment is put onto a frame um, and tightened at the corners, sort of attached by little, little dobbins, like little stones or something like that, that you would kind of put under the surface and it'll give you something to anchor rope on. 
And then it's stretched and allowed to dry and sort of continually stretched until it's thinner and very hard, gives you like a good surface you can write on. And and during this time, it gets um, sort of thinned down or worked with a double, a double curved blade we call a lunellum because um, it looks like a little moon. At that point, it's once it is sort of stretched to its full, it's taken off the frame and um, you will sort of trim it into these long sheets, which get folded in half. We call them bifolia. So one animal, just one animal, parchment's usually made from sheep or goat or cow. Those are the main animals. One of them yields maybe two to three bifolia. So like four to six pages once they're folded in half. So that gives you an idea of how many animals go into making any given book. Um, It can take, for really big deluxe manuscript, it can take hundreds of sheep, for example, to make one book. So that's one thing that should give people a sense maybe of how expensive these are um, and of the amount of labor that goes into producing them. Once you've got the pages folded, you're going to um, try and sort of set up the space that you actually copy the text on. And that's done by a process we call pricking and ruling. So little holes will be sort of poked at the edge of the page with an awl. Or later on, there are these cool little devices that are, it sort of looks like um, like a stereotypical spur kind of wheel thing on a handle. And you will roll it down the page and it um, pricks all of the lines for you. And then from there, lines are traced between the two pricks on either side of a page to make a sort of straight line for the writing surface. And that's done uh, sometimes with a stylus, so it'll make an actual indentation in the page, or sometimes with um, essentially a pencil with lead or plummet. That's the point where these they're folded into booklets and they're given to the scribes who write them. And these will be... Um, Varying kinds of groups of people early on in the Middle Ages. This is done mostly in monasteries and religious houses, but that's not really the case so much for uh, the time in which Chaucer is writing. At this point, you have um, a group of people that we call the clerkly proletariat. So these are clerical laborers who have other day jobs. They're often scribes themselves, but for guilds or for uh, like wealthy gentry households. Um, and they are sort of moonlighting, copying literature. It's fascinating. We know this in part because at this point, we've actually been able to identify some of them by name. Um, One of them is a man named Adam Pinkhurst, who um, has been, this is still, I think, generally accepted that he is the person who we used to call Scribe B, who copied the two earliest, most authoritative texts of the Canterbury Tales, a copy of Troilus and Crusada, a copy of Piers Plowman, which is an allegorical text written by one of Chaucer's contemporaries. And then a copy of John Gower's Confessio Amantis. John Gower is a friend of Chaucer's who's composing at the same time. At this point, then, uh, you'll have maybe someone who will come in and write some chapter heads in red, what we call rubric. Or sometimes they'll write like little sort of guides to what's going to happen at the next point in the text. Sometimes you will have people illustrate these. So if, if the people who are listening to this, if you have never seen a medieval manuscript... I want to encourage you to just go to, you know, Google Chrome or whatever browser you use and Google the Lindisfarne Gospels or, um, you know, just look up Illuminated Bible and you will see some of these are spectacularly complicated and luxurious. They'll have gold leaf used on the page as part of the illustration. They will have really like complicated, intense illustrations, bits of interlace work or full pages that are just what we call carpet pages because they look like really ornate rugs. It's just an entire page of like intricate vines and birds and animal heads and things like that. So those kind of manuscripts are are priceless. They cost untold amount of money to produce, you know, even before you get to the modern era where we're uh, aware of like how rare these are and the need to conserve them. So books are a luxury item in a way that they're not for us, right? That is roughly what what the state of books look like, most most copied by professionals. Many households, if they own a book, they might own, unless they're incredibly wealthy, they maybe own one, and it's their entire library in a book. It'll have all kinds of, of texts. It might have sermons. It might have romance. It might have lyrics. It might have a page where they just keep a record of their household expenses, uh, or the 
the birth of their children, for example. Um, so that is that's sort of roughly the the state in which books are produced uh, and circulated, and the the kinds of place they occupy within people's houses. So are Chaucer's works then disseminated on their own, where it's only Chaucer's work between two covers, or are they more frequently you know, included with other types of literature that people can then uh, purchase or commission? It's both. It's it's entirely both. So um, especially with longer texts, you will often see them um, just circulated on their own. The Canterbury Tales, there are, there are, so there are 84 manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, including, you know, significant fragments. And a good chunk of them are just the Canterbury Tales, including the ones that we tend to think of as the, the most significant or authoritative manuscripts. Um, but there are other ones where it will be bits of one of Chaucer's longer texts or some of his short ones. He wrote a number of shorter lyrics um, that I didn't really mention earlier. Um, and you'll see those collected together with lots of other texts in anthologies. I think one of the most interesting ones is this is Troilus and Crusade again. It's a single, a short excerpt from Troilus and Crusade, a stanza out of um, one of the parts of the text that is this really interesting, it's, it's sort of like a dramatic monologue within the story about uh, what love is and how much it sucks. And it's been taken out of that text and stuck into a treatise on um, called the Disque Mori, Mori on means learn to die. So it's a moral treatise. <laughs> about the significance of one's mortality and the need to live correctly. So you'll see bits of Chaucer shoved into all kinds of things. What you don't tend to see until the century after Chaucer's death is what we would call Chaucer anthologies, like collections of all of Chaucer's works in one volume, um, sometimes still with other people's things that people are attributing to Chaucer. So they'll take... Um, a bit of a Lydgate poem, for example, and stick it in there and say that it's Chaucer's work. Because these things often circulate without without a title necessarily uh, or without the author's name attached to them. Well, let's talk a little bit then about what people do with books once they've been produced. And certainly one term that's going to be extremely important for our conversation today is marginalia. Can you tell <laughs> us what that means? Marginalia just literally means things in the margins. So... When you, uh, if you pick up one of your old school books, say, from a literature class, and you see where you were kind of taking notes, um, either as you read or as the teacher talked about things to help you remember important parts of the text or the stylistic things that are going on. Um, one of my favorite examples is it comes out of um, Billy Collins' poem, Marginalia, where he sort of wryly observes that a copy of, I want to say it's a modest proposal or something like that, um, notes the presence of irony 17 times in the margins, that kind of thing, right? It can be pictures sometimes. So again, for people who are listening, if you've got a laptop handy, just Google medieval marginalia and you will find all kinds of strange things that have been put in the sides or the sort of bottom or top margins of a text. Nuns nuns picking penises out of trees, snails that are jousting with one another, murderous rabbits, just a whole series of things being stuck into people's butts. One of my favorites is a fox carrying away a duck and the scribe has, has written the word quack, like quack right above it. Or there's one of a really sad looking fat cat in a little blue jacket playing a lute. So they're not just text, right? They're, they're all different kinds of, of text that people can include, but they're also these really fantastic, bizarre, and sometimes really expensive, polished illuminations. Well, maybe by way of example, you can tell us just a little bit about the marginalia that we find in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and some of the work maybe that, that scholars have done on this. Absolutely. So there are, I, I sort of alluded to, there are a lot of different kinds of marginalia and almost all of them really are represented in the Canterbury Tales. So you will find sometimes glosses that are helping to translate a word or a phrase that could be confusing. If you think of the phrase, uh, one of the ones in, I think it's in the nun's priest's tale, um, there's the phrase, that, that, right? Which that's a confusing phrase, even in modern English, that, that. And what somebody has done is they've glossed it in Latin with the phrase id est over one of the that's that, that is trying to clarify the grammatical ways that each that is operating, that one of them is referring to an antecedent, like to another noun, and one of them is like sort of a relative thing that's relating that noun to the rest of the text, that thing which did the following. 
you will find readers' notations that are pointing out things that they think are really interesting or important. So they'll often write nota or nota bene, which just means essentially pay attention to this. Sometimes instead they'll draw what we call um, a manicule, which is a pointing hand. And some of them will be really elaborate. They'll have like weird pointy fingernails and frilled cuffs and things like that. So, you know, uh, some amount of thought and effort goes into these. You will often find uh, marginalia that are trying to help break apart the plot in ways that make it easy to move through the text. So they might summarize what's happened in the story at key points, or they might identify particular plot points that a reader might want to be able to find easily flipping through. Like, let's say you want to read a particular fight scene repeatedly, which, you know, if you're a house that has one book that has all of your texts in it, you're going to reread things. So they can be, there can be glosses that help people move through the text that way so that you can find the stuff you want to look at. You will see glosses like, you know, like that sort of joke about pointing out irony, things that are identifying stylistic features. Um, they might identify modes of speaking that a text at, at one point is telling an exemplum, giving an example of a theme, or that a text is speaking, say, in the, a preaching mode, right? So they're, they're interested in, like, qualities of voice in the text. And you'll also see glosses that are identifying uh, where a narrator might be speaking. Sometimes, though, they're also just completely unrelated to the text. You'll see people just trying out a new pen to make sure it works. You'll see people practicing writing their name. We're practicing writing other things, so sometimes they'll copy the text that they see in in like the main text itself to try out their own handwriting. You will see people sometimes will write their own poetry to add in. I I mentioned earlier in in some of these big household books, you'll see people uh, recording say a tally of expenses or the birthdays of their children. There's a one Canterbury Tales manuscript I've seen that has a list of like all of the members of the family and, and what their birthdays are. And then you'll see the glosses that we'll probably spend most of today talking about. These are the ones that I work on. And these are what we call the source glosses. Um, and what they are are quotations in Latin from the sources that uh, Chaucer was working with when he composed the Canterbury Tales. They are, most of the scholarship has focused on their authorship, the question of who wrote them, because they appear in Almost all of the earliest, most authoritative manuscripts, including um, the two that we tend to concentrate on are, we call them Hengert uh, and Ellesmere. And those are the two manuscripts that were copied uh, by Scribe B, who is tentatively, well, more than tentatively, um, he's identified as, as Adam Pinkhurst, as, you know, with any, any kind of identification of a specific person who wrote a text, that'll be contentious. And I know not everyone agrees, but... So far, I tend to be pretty persuaded by that identification. So this is a scribe who, if the identification holds, is somebody who appears to have worked with Chaucer over the course of his career. So that, you know, that brings those manuscripts really close into his own sphere of influence. So the general, the general consensus by people who work on these glosses is that Chaucer wrote them himself, um, which is really interesting because then we have this sort of puzzling question of why they're there in the first place. Why would he add them to, to the manuscripts of his text? What are they supposed to be doing in relation to it? Um, and there's some textual evidence that makes that pretty compelling because where his version of a source is a little bit different from the version that we usually saw in circulation. Um, so remember I said, because these are copied by scribes, we tend to have human error. Things get spelled wrong. If somebody can't read the handwriting, of the scribe whose work they're copying, they may get words wrong, especially if they're words that are antiquated, not really in use anymore, or if the handwriting is antiquated. So this is, we refer to this as scribal error. And there are some points where um, Chaucer's English text seems to have been uh, copied from an erroneous or a flawed copy of his, whatever source material he was working with. And the glosses have the same errors in them. So that tells us that they are most likely taken from the same version of the text, the same books that Chaucer was working with. So you get a kind of an Occam's razor um, issue where either somebody knew Chaucer's work so well and had access to his library that they were able to go in, find the text he was working with when he composed a certain story, identify the same exact passage that he used um, to compose a particular part, and then added that to the margins of his page in exactly the right spot or they're added by Chaucer himself.
Uh, and the, the simpler of those two theories is the latter, right? That's how we generally tend to look at it. And so what have scholars done with this? What does this tell us about about Chaucer's writing the Canterbury Tales, his thinking the Canterbury Tales? What do we learn from this? So what's interesting is not much has been done with these beyond trying to figure out who wrote them. Um, you know, it's it's uncharted territory in in most ways. There are a few theories, um, none of which are particularly satisfying. So uh, some have argued that these glosses are what we call memoranda for revision. So Chaucer's notes in his margin for continuing to polish his text, um, which he just never got around to because he died in 1400, right before, without completing the Canterbury Tales. I personally don't find that particularly compelling, especially because there is not much done by way of explanation for how at, at least two, I'm going to say three, and we can come back to this um, later if we want, but three different texts of Chaucer's, Canterbury Tales, Troilus and Crusader, and I would argue the House of Fame, all have glosses, which we can relatively persuasively or confidently attribute to Chaucer. And there's no real mechanism for explaining how in all of these texts, including two which were completed within his lifetime, or at least circulated within his lifetime, how his own personal revision notes happened to get out into circulation particularly for someone who, um, if he is working very closely with the scribe of these two Canterbury Tales manuscripts, there's no real explanation for why, if these weren't actually meant to circulate, they have actually gotten copied into so many copies of the text. Because 60-some out of the 84 manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales have some kind of glosses in them, and nearly half have some source glossing. So that's a, that's a huge percentage of the manuscripts. The other theory is that they're put there just as like window dressing to make the text look more learned, more like an academic text. And I don't think that's particularly satisfying either. That's a lot of effort for little return, I think, just to make a text look fancier than it is, especially um, if you want to deep dive into Chaucer's feelings about authority and about scholarly texts and things like that. Um, he's, he's very skeptical about those kinds of, of authority, of giving significance to a text. And so it, it doesn't strike me as a particularly Chaucerian move to, to put a lot of complicated Latin glosses on his text just to make it look more learned than it is. Other than that, there is one argument, and this is the one that I, I find persuasive that I tend to build off of. It's in a book called Opening Up Middle English Manuscripts, which is co-authored by Catherine Kirby Fulton, Mady Hilmo, and Linda Olson. And this is one of uh, Catherine Kirby Fulton's chapters. What she suggests is that there is a kind of very complicated, multilingual, intertextual form of commentary going on. That, um, and this is, this is what I, I tend to refer to um, as multidimensional reading or intertextual. So when that comes up, you know, as we talk about the Troilus and Crusader article, uh, what that means essentially is that these source glosses, they offer readers different ways of reading Chaucer's text, but ones that are competing with Chaucer, with what he's doing, um, with other texts that these relate to. Um, and so to illustrate this, I think the easiest or the best examples come from the Wife of Bath's prologue. And so The Wife of Bath, for people who aren't familiar with her, is she's this fantastic, over-the-top, polarizing figure. She's like a misogynist stereotype making uh, what we would tend to think of as, as relatively progressive or feminist kinds of arguments about her sexuality, about her right to get remarried. She's been married five times. She's widowed five times. And she says, welcome the six, you know, wherever he happens to be. And this is, of course, leaving aside other dalliances she's had in her youth. So she's like a very um, like first wave feminist progressive kind of figure, at least in, in some readings of the text. She is making some of these arguments using scripture, which she's kind of quoting and then tweaking to suit her own purposes. Um, and a great example of this is uh, when she's talking about St. Paul's advice to widows who he says, if you can't, if you can't stay chaste once you're widowed and no longer married, you should get remarried because it's better to marry than to burn because, you know, you're a, a naughty, naughty fornicator. And the wife of Bath quotes this, right? And, and uses this as evidence that her sort of serial remarriage is 
completely appropriate, has been sanctioned and authorized by St. Paul. Chaucer quotes um, in the glosses, he quotes that line, it's better to marry than to burn. So what's interesting about this is, on the one hand, you get this sort of set alongside St. Paul, who would not necessarily advocate the wife of Bath's over-the-top sexuality, but it's it's a relatively like sort of permissive stance on remarriage. Chaucer, however, is quoting it from a text called Against Jovinian by St. Jerome, who's one of the patristic fathers. And St. Jerome is writing this really polemical, like viciously misogynist uh, text advocating for virginity. Um, I've assigned portions of this in, in Canterbury Tales classes. And the last time I did, uh, one of the first things one of my students said when I came in was, I've never read something so misogynist in my entire life. It's a lot of stories about how good chaste women kill themselves rather than be defiled by lust, and then how uh, all the women who don't are horrible and sinful. And what Jerome has to say about this passage from St. Paul, that it's better to marry than to burn, is a lot less positive. It's, it's like this kind of darkly violent thing where he says, yeah, he says it's better to marry than to burn. But better doesn't mean it's good. And it's in the same way that it's preferable to have one broken leg and to be able to get around on crutches than it is to have two broken legs and to have to drag yourself around. So within this kind of standpoint, right, marriage is framed alongside this really like sort of painful bodily experience, right? That, that the physicality of lust and sex is akin to having your legs broken, which sounds kind of nicely mafioso-ish almost. And then he goes on to say that if more than one husband is allowed, it makes no difference whether he is a second or a third, because there is no longer a question of think single marriage. I do not condemn second, nor third, nor, pardon the expression, because I guess he's about to get obscene, eighth marriages. I will go still further and say that I welcome even a penitent whoremonger. Things that are equally lawful must be weighed in an even balance. So what Jerome is doing here, where Paul has been relatively permissive, right, and advocated for remarriage if necessary. Um, Jerome is essentially comparing all marriage uh, to sleeping with prostitutes. Um, so you have these like multiple different ways of reading the wife of Bath. You can read her just in and of herself and laugh at her sort of funny use of scripture to justify these sort of really ribald practices. You can read her alongside Paul and see this as a kind of commentary on scripture or can see maybe Chaucer thinking through or advocating a somewhat more um, permissive or progressive use of scripture and attitude towards sexuality and marriage. Or you can read it alongside Jerome and see a sort of much more critical take on the wife, um, see her as being this really problematic moral figure um, and Chaucer is kind of emphasizing the sort of ways that she is very sinful and lustful. Or a sort of fourth possibility, you can look at the two glosses together and see ways in which Jerome is actually being pretty uncharitable in his use of Paul. Like he's very, he's quoting very selectively from scripture in order to make his own points, just as Chaucer and Chaucer's wife of Bath are quoting very selectively from scripture to make their own points. So you have this sort of system of text and gloss in which all of these different possibilities are kind of there all at once if you can read Latin and if you can recognize these texts. Um, and this is an important thing to keep in mind. Like these are kinds of reading that are accessible to some readers, but certainly not all. And plenty of people who read the Canterbury Tales will read The Wife of Bath, not look at the glosses or not be able to read the glosses and move on with their lives. But for those who can read Latin and who can, um, who are familiar with the sources that Chaucer is quoting, you have this kind of um, swarm of competing ways of reading the text with Chaucer kind of sitting back and refusing to tell you which one is the right one. Well, now that we're talking about marginalia and about glosses, let's actually get into the work that you're doing in your article about Troilus and Criseida. And, and maybe first, we should actually start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about what that poem is all about. So Troilus and Criseida is this epic historical romance. It's uh, set during the siege of Troy. So 
for people who've had right like classics choruses or whatever if you say this takes you back to like the narrative of the Iliad the two main characters are both citizens of Troy Troilus is one of the brothers of um, Paris and Hector and he's one of the people who's fighting against the Greeks on on Troy's behalf um, and Criseida is the daughter of one of the high priests of Troy who at the beginning of the poem um, he sort of performs his auguries, he reads the signs and realizes that Troy is going to fall. And so he defects to the Greek camp. Um, and, and Criseida finds herself in a, a very insecure position in Trojan society, right? She has nobody to protect her. She's living on her own. Um, she is a widow. As we've talked a bit about widows, Chaucer's really interested in widows. So she, she doesn't have a husband to advocate for her. And she's concerned that she may be held accountable for her father's actions. So this is what sort of throws her into the sphere of the royal courts at Troy. She, she sort of asks for protection from Hector um, and is granted this. In addition, her, she has an uncle named Pandarus. So if, you're, if anyone is familiar with the word pander, right, it's like a pimp or a go-between. This is, this is part of where those meanings come from, is from the figure of Pandarus. So everyone has turned out to um, sort of participate in this ritual with the um, Palladium uh, of Troy. And Troilus happens to see Criseida there and is instantly like struck by her beauty and falls in love with her. So he complains about it to Pandarus, who is his friend. And Pandarus essentially says, oh, yeah, I can totally make this happen for you. So he uh, acts as sort of a go-between and initiates this um, relationship between Troilus and Criseida that spans the first three of the five books of the poem. And in book three is when the two of them finally sort of consummate their relationship in, in whatever form that takes. Uh, Chaucer's not especially clear. Okay, so because, you know, you can't just have like a, a text with a happy ending, I suppose, especially set against the fall of Troy. In the fourth book, one of the... Trojan soldiers, um, Antenor, who is a man who eventually will betray them um, and facilitate bringing the, the horse into Troy itself. Uh, Antenor is captured by the Greeks and they exchange or they set up an exchange um, to ransom uh, some Greek prisoners of war for Antenor. And Crusader's father in the camp says, hey, I would like my daughter brought along. Right? He knows that Troy is going to fall and he doesn't want her to die. So she is exchanged for Antenor with these other Greek soldiers, and this separates her from Troy, well, from Troy and from Troilus, which is the main one. So you have this kind of hitch in their relationship, um, and she attempts to leave the Greek camps to come back to Troy, uh, but is unable to. It's not safe. And, and Chaucer spends a good bit of time sort of emphasizing her, her position of insecurity within those camps. Um, she's once more in the position she was in at the beginning of Troilus and Crusader, she doesn't necessarily have um, anyone to defend her from other soldiers. She does not have, so the threat of rape looms large here. She doesn't have the kind of protector that she did in Troilus and in his family. So what eventually happens is unable to return to Troy and unable to get out of this situation, she is pursued by a man named Diomede, who... Um, eventually she takes as a lover. Um, and what's interesting here is most of the other texts uh, that actually tell this story, uh, the main one would be Boccaccio, is the author. So Boccaccio uh, is pretty critical of Criseida. She's, she's a much more like sort of um, active, flirtatious character in this exchange. Chaucer makes her very reserved, and he's very clear to indicate that she's she's very reticent, that she takes Diomeda as a lover in part because of the danger that she's in, because she is afraid. Um, but then, of course, he still also is very critical of her and writes some, you know, sort of misogynist things, blaming her for betraying Troilus. Um, and so at the very end of the poem, Troilus realizes that Criseida has a new lover in the Greek camp. He is killed while out fighting, and then he ascends into the heavens and sort of looks down on the earth and laughs at the triviality of all of the things that mortals are doing scurrying around fighting one another and so on. Um, and that's the end of the poem. So what are the, the manuscripts that you're looking at? Um, so there are two manuscripts that I am working with in this text. And these are two that, these are the two that have glosses, which we again attribute to Chaucer for similar reasons to the Canterbury Tales ones. You have some of those same like textual error kinds of things. Um, 
So the first is, um, they're both in Cambridge. One is uh, in St. John's College. It's manuscript L1, which we call J. Um, and the other is in the University Library, and that's manuscript GG427. And that one's really interesting because I mentioned earlier, right, that there aren't that many sort of Chaucer anthologies where people are collecting all of his works together in one volume. But this is one of them. They are both from the early to mid 15th century. So they both postdate um, both Chaucer's death and the composition of Troilus and Crusader by um, a number of decades. But they do have these glosses, which we still believe are Chaucer. So the method of transmission between his composition of the text and these manuscripts is not clear. Whatever copies they were, they're derived from no longer survive. But we, we do think that these are his own glosses. And what I'm looking at is, um, so these glosses are their source quotations again. In this case, they're coming uh, from a text by a man named Joseph of Exeter, who is uh, retelling the story of the Trojan War. This is this like really capacious narrative, right, that people can turn into all different um, purposes. You can write a Trojan War story about love and about betrayal. You can write a Trojan War story criticizing the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is what Joseph of Exeter did. Um, and he is focusing more on the figures of Helen um, and Paris, but uh, for most of the narrative. And uh, this is a really um, sort of vituperative, angry account of their relationship where Helen is portrayed as being very lustful, but also very greedy. So sexual lust, physical lust are equated with financial lust. And she's seduced. She actively chooses to, to go with Paris. And she's seduced as much by his gold and his fancy ship as she is by Paris himself. Um, so this is, this is the sort of context in which these glosses come, or from which these glosses come. So Joseph's text ends with this kind of catalog of descriptions of all of the characters in the Trojan War. And these are what Chaucer is quoting. So he has a description of Crusader, he has a description of Troilus, and a description of Diomeda. And they're stuck kind of weirdly into the end of book five, just as Diomeda is pursuing Crusader again, and she's about to give in. Uh, Chaucer pauses and inserts these descriptive portraits and has the glosses alongside them. And then we get back to the action where Crusada accepts Diomeda, gives him some gifts, um, the, the kinds of things you would typically give to a lover in romance. So a brooch and a sleeve and a nice horse. Now let's ask the big question. So what do you find when you look at the marginalia of these manuscripts? So what I find is that these glosses in J and GG are doing similar things um, with respect to how they situate Chaucer's text alongside um, his sources, alongside the various kinds of influences that feed into the way that we read it. This is, this is particularly interesting, um, well, for a lot of reasons, but one of them, right, is that part of what I'm looking, was looking for is to try and figure out if there are earlier versions of Chaucer working out this kind of approach to gloss and text. Because the Canterbury Tales glosses are expansive. I mean, they span every text in the Canterbury Tales um, has at least like one or two, right? Um, not necessarily in every manuscript. Sometimes they get left out. But if you look at these sort of earliest versions, they, they're throughout, they're complicated. They vary in density and complexity, between text and text, they are all these different style of, of annotation, of marginalia that we talked about earlier, you know, the narrative summary, the, the interest in voice or in narrator, the source glosses. And that's a kind of an odd thing to, I think, to sort of like arise fully formed in an author's practice. Like I, so I wanted to see, first of all, if this was something that he was trying earlier. Um, and so that's the first sort of thing that I discover is that I think that the Troilus and Crusader glosses are doing something similar. So we may have a chance in these to see how Chaucer is kind of playing with what marginalia can do in relation to literature. And so the ways in which they are acting similarly, I think this is, you kind of hear some of this potential outlined, right, when I'm talking about 
what Joseph of Exeter is doing, is they offer some really different ways to understand Crusada, her relationship with Troilus, her decision to take Diomeda as a new lover once she's stuck in the Greek camp, right? So the first thing that they do is if, if readers recognize the source in Joseph of Exeter, um, and this is a text that it has some gaps in terms of when manuscripts survive from. There are manuscripts from the 12th century. There are manuscripts from the 14th century. Whichever copy Chaucer had doesn't survive any longer. There are no manuscripts that survive from the 13th century, but that doesn't mean that they didn't exist. So we don't have, a, we sadly just don't have the evidence to to try and figure out how many there are, right? Manuscripts get destroyed when they get destroyed in war. There are plenty that were lost in World War II. Manuscripts get destroyed when, say, Henry VIII decides that we're not Catholic anymore and the monetary the monasteries are um, uh, ransacked, closed down, manuscripts are um, destroyed, right? So there are lots of ways in which things disappear or no longer survive. Um, so we don't have a great set of evidence aside from the few manuscripts that are around the fact that Chaucer had access to Joseph of Exeter to excerpts from Joseph of Exeter that survive in like collections of literature. But that doesn't mean that people weren't familiar with the text. And and I think in particular, if Chaucer was able to read it, had access to a copy, it's likely that his most immediate literary circle also was familiar with the story. So for those people they now have a way of reading this text that sort of sets what is going on between Troilus and Crusader and Diomeda within the story about what is going on with Helen and Paris. Um, and within this critique of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who Joseph perceived as being very greedy and ambitious, um, sort of grasping for a lot of um, power for the title that he, that he arrived at, that he got to unjustly. So, in this context, right, we can, um, we see a licit-ish relationship between Troilus and Crusader. You know, there's, there's some debate about whether or not they are married, whether there's like a, a secret, a clandestine marriage that happens between the two of them. But it's certainly not adulterous. Um, and this relationship is then set alongside the very um, explicitly immoral, adulterous relationship between Helen and Paris. You also have Crusada aligned with um, a character who Joseph is depicting as being really mercenary, right? Like her, she's, her interest in Paris is very mercantile. Um, she wants the, the gold and the ship with the fancy purple sails and all of the kinds of luxuries and trappings that come with uh, living with him in Troy. So we get a much less flattering description or depiction of Crusader and a much more misogynist one, right, where women are greedy and ambitious. And we also have maybe some of the, the extent to which Chaucer cushions the way we read Crusader accepting Diomeda. Maybe we now see it as being less about fear and insecurity and being more about a position, having a position of power, having whatever goods come along with being the son of uh, the paramour of the son of a king um, and, you know, one of the sort of better soldiers in the Greek camp. So this is another sort of light in which Crusader becomes much less flattering. But Trojan narratives circulate in lots of different forms in the Middle Ages. Um, and these glosses, like the ones in the Canterbury Tales, uh, there's no citation. It's not like Chaucer says, this is from... Joseph of Exeter, just as he doesn't explicitly say this is from St. Paul or this is from Jerome with the wife of Bath's prologue losses. So readers might be familiar with completely different versions of the story that they could read Troilus and Crusada alongside. They could think about it in comparison to Boccaccio's version where Crusada is much more like aggressive, flirtatious, much more culpable for betraying Troilus, like a sort of medieval femme fatale. They might read it alongside versions in which Crusada is not even a character. She she sort of emerges as this conflation in some ways of um, a couple of figures from the Iliad, Chryseis and Briseis, who are two women who are captured by the Greek army in a sort of side battle before they get to Troy. And Chryseis is Agamemnon's concubine, and she's the uh, daughter of a priest of Apollo. Um, and when Agamemnon refuses to um, have her be ransomed and give her back, 
the priest complains to Apollo. Apollo makes her give him back. And then Agamemnon, in exchange, decides to take Briseis, who was Achilles' spoil of war. And this is another one where it's sort of debatable whether or not they are married. He, in some texts, he talks about her as though she is his wife. Um, but there is, it's not like there's a marriage ceremony that takes place that we see. So this is the the sort of genesis of um, Achilles' tantrum and his refusal to fight um, against the Trojans, right? So this is a, another completely different version of Criseida that readers might be familiar with and might sort of read alongside Chaucer's text. Or... They might think about this in comparison to Dares and Dictes, which were the, the accounts that circulated um, widely in the Middle Ages in Europe. There's absolutely no love affair. They're not interested in that. This is very much like um, an epic poem, and the figure of Troilus is just a really valorous warrior who kills a whole bunch of Greeks um, before he himself is killed. So again, you have all of these like sort of competing different ways of reading what Chaucer has actually written based on this invitation to compare the text with any number of other possible contexts or sources. So how does all of this affect our understanding of, well, really a whole host of things, of of Chaucer as an author and his intentions? How does it affect our understanding of the Canterbury Tales marginalia? And then maybe really, how does all of that affect our understanding of late medieval writing and reading in general? So, I mean, I think the last one is really the key one. So to the first two, I think this reaffirms to me the idea that these glosses are meant to do something with the text, that they're not just left there as um, the remains of some revisions that never happened, that they're not just um, meant to make the text look more learned than it is. They suggest, right, that the practice of glossing that Chaucer arrives at in the Canterbury Tales is something that he was actively interested in and, and working through over the course of his career. I actually think we see some glosses that are they're not on textual evidence attributed to Chaucer the way that these two are. Um, but there are some Latin marginalia in one copy of the House of Fame, which in, in my book I will be arguing are also Chaucer's. Even though, like I said, even though we don't have the same kind of like shared textual error, right? They do similar things. So this seems to be a practice that he was really interested in toying with and refining over almost the entire course of his literary career. And this is this is fascinating, I think, because these are so different from the dominant ways that we talk about what literary criticism is in the Middle Ages, what authorship is. Current scholarship it tends to work from this is what we would what I would call like the ethical or scholastic model. So these are attitudes about reading that come from uh, schoolroom texts, from commentaries on scripture and on classical authors, from ways of trying to think about how human authors, especially you know particularly sinful ones, but right, any human is inherently sinful how human authors can be acceptable sources of Christian authority. Um, so how someone like David, who is an adulterer and a murderer, can be um, the voice of the sort of important uh, truths of the Psalms, for example. And these theories are really important. They are, among other things, they are some of the few that come from medieval sources, right? Right. This is a kind of tension in ways that we talk about how literature works in the Middle Ages is that scholars who are interested in various theories that have a lot of currency now, right? So um, people who want to talk about critical race theory or about gender and sexuality theory or things like that, you get pushback from scholars who will say that these are modern ideas and modern constructs and aren't things that medieval people would have thought about. So. These glosses, I think, are a really important way of framing reading practices that aren't just the ethical scholastic model, which I'll get into how that works in a second, because they also come from medieval sources. And they align, I think, in ways that are probably really familiar to modern readers, that some of the things that deconstructionists, that, that people who um, who are interested in, say, the works of Derrida and the idea that language is inherently instable and slippery, that texts 
sort of spiral out of our control in ways that are significant, that are a product of authorial enterprise, right? Things that we do deliberately, things that that happen whether we want them to or not. These are the kinds of things that people will sometimes argue, well, those are those are modern ideas. Chaucer did not think about literature in the same way. But I think we see really similar practices in those glosses, in this kind of, as I talk about this, like the this sort of cluster of competing texts, I actually, I have the mental image whenever I think about this of like a cartoon um, cloud of birds, like sort of swarming around your head, you know, like when Bugs Bunny gets hit on the head by an anvil or something and, and birds are all sort of flying and tweeting around his head. It's like that, but they're all yelling a different way of interpreting the text at you. And you have to pick one. <laughs> um, so these are medieval sources that demonstrate that kind of reading practice that I think is very familiar to modern readers and modern theorists. Um, and it stands aside from what the other kinds of medieval documentary sources that we talk about right now do. Uh, this is that ethical scholastic model, right? So they are interested in the idea that an author or an alctor, which is a term that is used, that these are ethical figures. Um, they are authorities who are deserving of belief, and they must themselves be moral figures. So an outdoor who is, um, an outdoor amans is, I, I love this term, it's like an, an author who's a lover. This is like a contradiction in terms. You can't be immoral and be an outdoor who is worthy of authority. And so literature in this model is understood as pertaining to ethics, to needing to be fitted into these kinds of ways of thinking about author and what a text does. So the argument then is that literature, medieval people didn't think about literature the, the way that we do, that it is not necessarily about stylistics or literary showmanship, that it's, it's not this kind of like aesthetic category that's different from other sorts of texts, that these are all sort of regarded together and all fitted into a kind of branch of philosophy that they pertain to and a specific use. And you see this in commentaries, commentaries and in introductions to texts that identify all of the sort of relevant information about it. So they'll, they'll say who an author is, if it's known. They'll say um, what the sort of mode of the text is, what its subject matter is. They will tell you what branch of philosophy it pertains to. And, and for most of the things that we think of, of as literature, that would be ethics, even things like Ovid, right? You have to find a way to make Ovid's really dirty poetry be about ethics. And then they will identify a use or a utilitas. And for, for scandalous, for difficult material, we can come back to Ovid here, that use typically is to demonstrate um, either the the good ends that come to moral people or the bad ends that immoral people mean. So for Ovid, it's like the good lovers, the ones who are state chased or the ones who get married, you know, and are sort of fitted into an acceptable sort of model of love. They have happy endings. The bad ones have sadder endings. So the idea is that the things that we think of as literature, style, um, metaphor, tone, content, all of these things, these are chaff that you have to sift through, right, to get to the kind of the wheat of the final meaning, its its use, its utility. So these are practices that assume that there is a right meaning, that there is some kind of orthodoxy in how you're supposed to interpret the text. There's a right way to do it, and there are wrong ways to do it, and the right way identifies um, that particular use. What we see in Chaucer's glosses, I think, is the exact opposite. They create these multiple complex competing meanings, but they never tell us which one is the right one. This is a model of reading then that is it's drastically different from what is going on in this kind of acceptable ethical model. Um, and I think this is really significant, right? This tells us that reading in the Middle Ages isn't this kind of ethical monolith. Scholarship tends to be focused overwhelmingly on this ethical model. And that's partly because, you know, it's very persuasive. Like, there are tons of Latin sources that demonstrate this. There's no question that this is one way of reading in the Middle Ages and a very significant one. But I think what's really significant about the glosses is it shows us that this is not the only way of reading. Um, and there are others that are not just different, but ones that maybe speak to us more. Um, some of my work, we were, this is um, a different set of Troilus manuscripts, but there are some that also, I think, operate in really emotional ways where the glosses are scripting 
engagement with the text where you are encouraged to identify with Troilus and Griseida, and they are really interested in the kinds of metaphor that are used. There's a difference, right, between knowing how somebody feels and understanding how somebody feels in feeling the same things along with them. And there are some glosses that encourage readers to engage with the text in that way. So this is yet another sort of set of reading practices that is different from this ethical model. And one that I think is really familiar to us. Like if you've ever had a bad breakup and watched Pride and Prejudice while eating a pint of ice cream, right? So it's it's a really, um, I think, familiar and modern model of thinking about texts. And I think this is, I think it's really important that this suggests that ideas about literature and reading are not completely different from our own, right? The, the, the sort of distance of time between the Middle Ages and now does not necessarily mean that there are like sort of differences in quality, in belief, in culture, in attitude. And I think, I think among other reasons, this is really important because we tend to use the sort of threat of anachronism, right, of something being inaccurate to the time as a, as a way of gatekeeping in scholarship, right, um, to describe what is and is not good scholarship, what is and is not um, true to the Middle Ages. And in the worst scenarios, this, this charge of anachronism gets sort of leveled against people who are working on race in the Middle Ages or on gender in the Middle Ages, on sexuality in the Middle Ages, which, you know, this, this writes certain kinds of, of interesting and politically significant scholarship out of the field of what is and is not accepted. Um, and that's a really big problem, right? That, that means that uh, this, is, this is important, like politically charged work that helps us understand ourselves, our society, the origins of some of our structures of thought. So you know, if we come back to to some of our earlier conversations about consent and rape in the Middle Ages, we see really similar attitudes in medieval texts to um, what we think of as rape culture now. So it's not like these ideas are things that have like sprung up in the modern era, that all of a sudden rape culture is a thing that never existed before. It has roots centuries deep. It goes back beyond the Middle Ages still. And it's really important that we recognize that there are these touchstones between the two, right? I think this is also really important because this kind of gatekeeping through anachronism, it keeps our field from being as inclusive as it should be. It, it tells scholars of color and female scholars that work on anything that could be maybe grouped under identity politics is not welcome and that they're not welcome. And that's, that's a huge problem in our field right now. And so I think that we need to, we need to find ways maybe in, in other areas as well to sort of push past the idea that, that we can use anachronism as a weapon to, to restrict the field to certain people and certain kinds of scholarship. And so I think that what's really fascinating about this is that we have here something that has been called anachronistic, that the idea that Chaucer is interested in creating ambiguity and refusing to tell you the right way to understand a text um, has long been called anachronistic when deconstructionists were making these arguments about, about his work. You know, we would push back and say, this is not accurate to the Middle Ages. What is accurate to the Middle Ages is the ethical model. Well, in the glosses to the Canterbury Tales, we have evidence that that those kinds of ways of reading exist in other kinds of commentaries, in ones that aren't the scholastic ones. And that's really important, right? That reminds us that we need to be careful about how we use anachronism to control the ways we talk about the Middle Ages. I think it's also, and I'm, I'm getting a really far afield from reading practices here, but in general, I think that if we can make those kinds of connections between our society and the Middle Ages... I think that can also be really important for deconstructing like falsely mythologized versions of the Middle Ages that speak to extremist beliefs. So like the adoption of Viking and Scandinavian, like North Atlantic cultures by white nationalists, like this kind of way of thinking about the Middle Ages only works if we can make medieval Europe be different or other than our culture so that we can turn it into this kind of polemical golden age where whatever current problem does not exist. So, for example, to to argue for like a racial monolith of like white Europe, you have to turn the Middle Ages into something that it isn't, um, something that is 
distinct from, completely separated from the kind of like multicultural America we have now. Um, multicultural, multicultural world, right? Globalism can't be a thing in the Middle Ages. We have to make it other than what we are. So I think when we can find those connections in structures of thought, in ways of reading, but again, more importantly, in, in race, in gender, in, in those kinds of, of categories, right? We have ways to kind of dismantle some of the attempts to use the Middle Ages as a weapon. And I think that's really important for our entire field to do. Like, we should all be thinking about how we make sure that something that we study, that the work we do um, is not used to harm people. So I think that there, again, even though reading practices themselves, uh, you know, they are very far away from this kind of thing. For me to be able to say, we read literature the way medieval people do, that's not going to mean that the Middle Ages is no longer this like racist totem. But the more we can find ways to, to identify those cultural touchstones, I think the more we can work to pull apart some of the problematic uses of the Middle Ages. Um, and so I think that is one of the larger umbrella significances of some of this kind of work. Well, Dr. Beckley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your work today. I'm happy to do it. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me in the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. I'll be back next month to talk with Dr. Michael Stewart about masculinity in Procopius's history of the late antique Gothic War. Until then... Awe atque wale.